Good afternoon, everyone. The Chief Minister is undertaking all the duties this afternoon, so alongside myself, I'm delighted to be joined at the podium by the Director of Public Health, Dr Henrietta Hewitt. Before I get started, I would like to share with you today's figures. The total tests undertaken stands at 28,638. The total number of tests concluded stands at 28,583, meaning we are waiting the results of 53 tests. No new cases have been identified in the last 24 hours, so the total number of cases remains at 434, and we currently have eight active cases. Today marks 23 days since our last identified case of community spread, and also four days since we have been able to exit our circuit breaker lockdown and restore much of our society back to the life we had in December. So I'd like to take the opportunity to thank each and every one of you for sticking to the rules and allowing our island once again to push back against this dreadful debilitating virus. You should all rightly be proud of what we as a community has achieved, not once but twice over the last 12 months. This gives me an opportunity to pass over to the Director for Public Health for a brief update on our current situation. Over to you, Dr Ewart. Thank you, Minister. There's not really very much to add other than, uh, you know, just to reiterate that we have only eight active cases on Ireland, no community cases for 23 days, and actually everything is looking very good, so long as we keep the borders secure. And on that note, I'd just like to share with you the results of the genomic sequencing which have shown us that so far we have had five cases of the UK new variant, sometimes also known as the Kent variant, that have come on Ireland, and one case of the South African variant. Now, those were all identified in travellers, and they were all contained through the self-isolation and testing regimes. So I just need to reiterate yet again that anybody who is under a direction notice for whatever reason, particularly as a traveller, it really is imperative that they obey that to the letter, because we really do not want to get community spread of any COVID-19, but particularly not of any of the new variants. Uh, we're on the homeward straight now with the rollout of the vaccination programme and the accruing evidence about the effectiveness of the vaccines in both preventing serious illness and probably preventing transmission. So we really do not want to reseed community transmission. Thank you. Thank you, Dr Hewitt. And leading directly on from that, it does have to, however, be recognised that not everything is still what we would in different times describe as normal. We still have border restrictions in place around who can enter our island community and self-isolation requirements for those returning. It is important to emphasise that those restrictions remain in place. People must follow the direction notice they are issued on entering or returning to the island and anyone who does not do so is committing a criminal offence. Despite us returning to some semblance of normality, the self-isolation rules continue to operate as they did during the circuit breaker. Unless an exemption has been granted in a traveller's exemption notice, they must isolate alone or with a person they have travelled with. For the avoidance of doubt, you cannot stay at an address with any other people who have not travelled with you. If other members of your family are at the address and have not travelled, you must isolate away from home for your period of isolation. This is monitored and enforced, and any breaches will lead to arrest and prosecution. 
We know that this measure is tough for many, but it is there to protect our island community. Our borders are our greatest weapon, but also our greatest weakness. As the Director of Public Health has said on many previous occasions, we are only as safe as the last person across the border. As we look around the world at the situation in many other jurisdictions, it is clear that when it comes to spreading of this virus, it only takes one person to decide to deviate from those rules to cause a widespread outbreak. The measures are there to protect our community and allow us to maintain the enviable position of having and exercising personal freedoms that other nations cannot currently enjoy. So please, if you are returning to the island after travel, stick to the rules, no matter how difficult it may be. It not only protects our community as a whole, but also your own loved ones at home from prevent a potential infection and spread. None of us know how this virus will affect us until we contract it, and by then it is too late. So please stick to the rules and help our island community stay safe. Turning to the vaccination programme, the vaccination programme continues to roll out at a pace and as of 3.30 this afternoon, we have completed 7,920 first-dose vaccines and 2,183 second-dose vaccines, a total of 10,103 vaccines delivered. We have now vaccinated 79% of all residents in care homes and their carers, 67% of all the over-80s and healthcare workers, and letters have now started to go out inviting those over the age of 75 for their vaccinations. I've mentioned here at this podium before that this is a huge logistical challenge and the biggest vaccination rollout in human history. We continue to receive our regular supplies of vaccine from the UK stock on a per head of population basis and we will continue to vaccinate as the rate of supply allows us. As has previously been said, this will differ over time as the rate of supply is not a consistent amount each week as the manufacturers have to produce and then distribute these vaccines from scratch. So the supply of vaccine available for us to order will differ week by week. We are expecting there to be some short-term disruption in coming weeks with the Pfizer vaccine supply as Pfizer looks to expand its Belgian plant's production capacity. But this will not halt our vaccine rollout as we have in stock all the required second doses for those who have already had the Pfizer vaccine and we will be continuing at a pace with available surprise of, of Oxford AstraZeneca. As a nation we are heading in the right direction and should be proud of the hard work being undertaken by all our frontline workers to keep our island safe and it has put us in the top 10% of nations around the world for vaccination rollout. So I'd like to take the opportunity to say thank you to all those involved in the vaccination programme, all of whom are working tirelessly to give us the protection we need to defeat this dreadful virus. Sticking with thank yous, I would like to say a huge thank you to the Manx Breast Cancer Support Group, who has funded a COVID-19 leaflet for patient transfers. It is full of useless advi useful advice on the rules and the system to stick to while in the United Kingdom during the pandemic. It also highlights sources of information and help and will be offered to all patient transfers travelling for treatment. So thank you to Manx Breast Cancer Support for your continuing help and support. And now we turn to questions from the media. 
And first up today, from Arleman Television, I have Paul Moulton. And just before you ask your question, Paul, I believe congratulations may be in order. Was it your birthday yesterday, if I'm right? Thank you. You were invited for a drink in an unsocial distancing area, but I didn't see you there. But I, I obviously haven't seen the email. <laughs> Thank you for reminding it's somewhere, me. It's somewhere in the backlog, but happy birthday, Paul. Thank you very much. And it was the envy, actually. The pictures like that go around the world and people just come at you back and, wow, this is an amazing situation. You must be getting so much press as well. You, it's, it's been quite a time for the old man, hasn't it? It has indeed. Um, I, I mean, the response globally um, to the, what the Isle of Man is has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, media from all around the world. I think the Chief Minister today has been speaking to Austrian and Canadian media um, around the situation here in the island. Um, so everyone on the island should be very proud of what they've achieved and it's getting international recognition for our small community. And I heard you on LBC, which is my station to listen to normally. Anyway, the question. Um, Lancet had um, quite a big thing about the AstraZeneca COVID-19 dose rate. And it's, it's sort of backing up what the UK is saying about actually making the, the pause between the first and the second dose uh, longer is actually proving to be actually a useful thing to do. Your thoughts, because you, you did say that you may have points where you're going to be not getting the, the amount of vaccine you want in. Any sort of changes maybe having to be looked at in, if that is the case, knowing that this does work? Well, I'll give the layman's view first of all, and then I'll pass to the Director of Public Health to give the professional view. Um, from a layman's point of view, we, we assess all the evidence that's put before us. Um, we continue um, to continually assess everything, including the new report that is out. Um, there is evidence from this report that the, having the 12-week dose doesn't affect efficacy, but there has also been notes of caution sounded around it as well um, from certain scientists who've said that when you look at the samples that the report used, particularly around the age, the sex of the people involved um, and the ethnicity, it wasn't necessarily um, a full widespread sample, but it is looking positive. Um, we will obviously review it as we always do. At the moment, we are still sticking with the 21 days for the second dose, but if the clinical advice is that we should go longer than that, then that is what DHSC will follow. But I will pass you over to the Director of Public Health, who can give you a much more technical explanation than I can. Yes, uh, the Lancet paper is, of course, a preprint, which means it hasn't yet been peer-reviewed, and clearly it needs that to really test the data and look at all the strengths and the limitations thereof, which um, often appear different to people who are not the research team that published than to the actual uh, researchers. But, in fact, the, the findings from that study do look extremely encouraging. They followed up the same cohorts as were in the initial Phase 3 trial, so it is full data, um, which is good, um, and it does certainly seem to indicate that efficacy is at least as good with a 12-week delay and may be better. And there may be reasons for that based on what we know and what JCVI took into account when they made their original assessment that we know from other vaccines that often a longer interval leads to better response than a shorter one. So that wouldn't actually be to be unexpected. The other thing that is extremely interesting out of um, that paper is that they not only followed up the original cohort on exactly the same basis as they had in the trial, which is to say that people either had the vaccine or the dummy vaccine, the control vaccine, uh, which was actually a meningitis vaccine, 
and then those people were sort of let be, if you like, um, with the proviso that should they develop symptoms, they were to report and they were then tested. So the follow-up of those people depends on them developing symptoms. And that is the data that has shown us and has now confirmed that people who have the vaccine are protected from serious illness. However, what they have now done with the UK cohort that was in that trial, they actually not only waited for people to present with symptoms, they actually did weekly tests on everybody, regardless of whether or not they had symptoms. And that is the data that is showing strong indications that this vaccine actually prevents infection or reduces infection. And if it reduces infection, it will reduce transmission. So that's an extremely positive finding, which obviously we hope will be borne out in, in wider data and longer follow-up. And 17,700 people, a good amount of people do for this sort of testing, you know, for data? Yes, yes. A phase three trial will have had a lot of statistical um, analysis to determine the sample size. There are some statistical techniques you use to show how many you need in your sample in order to show a valid result. So it will all have been calculated before the protocol was even agreed and the trial started. Right. Um, another question is about mixing and matching of the vaccines now. That seems to be uh, coming back into the potential ideas that you don't need to keep with the same one. Uh, we doing what and what will your thoughts be on this? Well, again, I'll hand over to Director of Public Health in a moment for the more technical answer. We are sticking with giving people the second dose of the same vaccine they've had. It's very early days in the trials that they're undertaking in the UK. They've literally just started the trials to see what the effect is of mixing and matching. We believe at the moment the safest and best point of view from a clinical point of view is to keep to the same vaccine that people have had. The trial data may show different when it comes out, but as with everything in this pandemic, that takes time to come through. Um, and it may be a substantial amount of time yet till we have formal evidence on that. And I'll hand over to Dr Ewart. Yes, the Minister is absolutely right. We're certainly not at the point of moving to any change in that direction ourselves. Um, the vaccines are not currently authorised for that mixing and matching and the evidence for them is not there. Um, interestingly, there are really two reasons why this is of interest. One is to actually help with supply issues, because if you're not constrained by having to have the second dose of exactly the same, you can be more flexible in how you use your vaccine and roll out your programme. So that's one thing. And obviously, in the face of a pandemic, that's quite important. But the other thing is that there are actually some quite strong theoretical reasons why you might get a better response, better efficacy from a mix and match approach. But that is hypothetical at the moment and needs to be tested with the data. So exactly as the minister says, we need to wait for those studies to be done. Good. And next up, I've got Helen at Alaman Newspapers. Good afternoon, Helen. Good afternoon. Firstly, how are government keeping track of side effects uh, from the vaccines and will this information be publicly available? 
Yep, so we have the yellow card system um, in relation to anyone who has any severe effects um, and side effects. We will expect people generally to have the normal side effects, which is a sore arm, potential flu-like symptoms, most of which pass after 24 hours after having had your second dose. Um, that is normal. Um, in terms of any serious side effects, my understanding from speaking to the chief executive as, uh, as late, last, late last night um, is we haven't had anyone who's had a serious reaction action um, directly linked to the vaccine but though we do have reporting procedures in place um, as for how those reporting procedures will filter through I'll pass over to Director of Public Health. Yes I mean we, we feed into the yellow card system which is UK wide it's run by the MHRA which is the regulatory body which authorised the vaccines and obviously regulates and authorises all medicines. Um, we would not expect to get disaggregated Isle of Man data back um, because that's not how the system works and it's important to understand that that is actually a good thing because you need a big population to make this meaningful. With a small population you could apparently get either more side effects or fewer purely by chance. And so, you know, a small population base for the reporting of these things isn't actually useful and could cause you to misinterpret things one way or the other. Okay, thank you. Secondly, when will government expect uh, to announce, uh, sorry, the priority categories, uh, the next phase of the vaccination programme, the next uh, priority categories? Yep, so phase one, as we, as people will know, Helen, is for anyone over the age of 50 and in the vulnerable category, we expect to have the vaccinations completed towards the end of May for those categories. Phase two, um, then, at the moment, has not been set by the JCVI, which we follow. I believe the JCVI is supposed to be making recommendations in this area in the next couple of weeks. And as soon as we have those recommendations from the JCVI, they will be discussed clinically over here. And then as quickly as we can, we will get the rollout out to the public but the JCVI hasn't made the decision yet around the phase two rollout that is expected within the next 14 days or so I'm advised. Thank you. Okay next up I've got Alex Bell from BBC Alaman. Good afternoon there's been some significant positive press attention uh, focused on the Isle of Man this week there may well some have predicted be a potential influx of people seeking to relocate permanently here what is the policy on people moving to the Isle of Man? Will it be tightened if there is a sudden surge in applications? Well, I think we I think we have a very tight policy as it is, Alex. People who've got contractual obligations, so if they are purchasing houses or um, have, have rented to move in, they can do so, but they still have to vo uh, follow the isolation standard. Um, the Isle of Man government has never made a secret of the fact that longer term we want to grow the population. I think the likelihood of masses amounts of people wanting to relocate in the middle of a worldwide pandemic I think is probably quite low. I think most people will be staying put for the period of the pandemic. Um, but if after that people wish to relocate to the Isle of Man and make that their home, then they are welcome. The Isle of Man community has always been very welcoming to people of communities all around the world. And I would hope that anyone who wanted to move here would receive a very warm welcome. We know our island is a lovely place to live and work. Um, I sp I've spent most of my life living on our island, um, apart from the brief period where I went to university and I worked in the UK. Um, and I think it's a great place to live and I'd be delighted if people wanted to make our island their home. 
Thank you. And just uh, as a follow-up question, is there any firm dates for the upcoming vaccination centres on the Isle of Man? Any, any update on those? So Chester Street, um, so uh, the Chester Street hub, we hope will be online potentially the third week of February. So the third week of this month, we're hoping that we'll have Chester Street up and running as a replacement for Newlands. The, um, the, what we're terming a northern hub, but again, I need to clarify, will be pop-up clinics in the north of the island. Um, so we'll be delivered, hopefully, by primary care. That will require and be dependent upon our negotiations with the GPs as to what they are able to deliver or willing to deliver. And that will be the very end of February. Thank you. Next up, I've got Sam at Jeff. First, my minister, we've had um, both parents and students contact us about what will happen for university students who, um, are people who aren't aware, when you go to university in England, they recommend you register with a local GP. And um, when that happens, you get deregistered on Ireland. They're not certain what will happen with them regarding the vaccine, because obviously a lot of them have now stayed on the island instead of going to the UK. Um, and they're just a bit concerned about when... It comes to their term, will they be expected to get onto the UK list or will they be added back onto the Isle of Man's lists? Well, I have, I have asked questions about this, interestingly, for someone who contacted me. Now, my understanding in relation to the vaccine is the students will potentially have access to either or. Um, if they are on Ireland, they will, when it gets to their turn, depending upon what the situation is, because most students won't fall into the priority groups we're doing at the moment. They'll be in phase two, apart from those that might have vulnerabilities. Um, they, they will actually potentially have to register here with a GP. What normally happens, Sam, when they go to university is not that they get deregistered as such. They get listed as a temporary resident over here and they, because you can only be registered as a full resident at one GP. Um, but we have a way via the Department of Education, Sport and Culture of capturing the, most of those students who are going to university. And if necessary, we can set up a registration system on Ireland to be able to capture them when it becomes their term. But they are the vast bulk of those will be the very last sort of cohorts to be vaccinated because of their age profile, other than, as I say, those that will fall in the vulnerable category. So there will be a mechanism in place. But my understanding is Manx students in the UK are able to access the UK vaccination programme as well from the inquiries that I made. Thank you. And just secondly, in terms of the um, vaccine rollout, have we got any further down the line towards, I know you said the vaccines will be sort of up and down in terms of delivery. Um, beyond the two that we are currently getting on Ireland, do we have any update about where the process is towards the UK giving the go-ahead and when we may then see them? So the, the only other one that's currently authorised by the UK is the Moderna. Um, and in relation to Moderna, they're not expecting supplies until the spring. Um, the other vaccines which we've been hearing very exciting press stories about over the last week or so, like no Novavax, um, they are that is still up in the air, so it's not known when the UK will receive those doses. There's been everything stipulated from statements I've heard in the House of Commons to um, summertime to other statements saying at the end of the year. Um, so in terms of that, it's really up in the air, but I'll pass over to Director of Public Health in case she's got anything. I don't know. Yes, uh that's absolutely right. We don't know. What we've got so far is the published trial data for those two vaccines, the Novavax and the Janssen's, which is Johnson & Johnson, but they haven't been through the MHRA, so they haven't been given authorisation yet. And obviously, once that happens, there's all the issues about uh, rolling out the paperwork, the protocols, the liability, etc. And of course, understanding what the supply chain and timeline is going to look like. So I think, yes, it's going to be 
certainly summer at the earliest mm. and probably later. Thank you. Okay, next I've got Rob at 3FM. Good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, Minister. First of all, once the Chester Street Hub comes online and then the Northern pop-up clinics, as you mentioned, after that, how will you decide who gets invited to go to which of the centres when they're given their appointments? So in terms of the airport and the Chester Street hubs, they are going to be the two main hubs. Um, it will be looked at on a booking basis as to where there are slots um, available. In terms of those vaccines that we will be doing in the north of the island, they will be purely limited to those that can't travel. So those that have a very valid reason as they can't travel will be able to go via the hub pop-up clinics to be vaccinated, but that is purely that those will be limited to. People who are able-bodied, be able to be assisted to a vaccination hub, will go through Chester Street or the airport because that is the way that we manage to get mass vaccination out there. It's the most efficient way to deliver the vaccines. Um, so that they will have to go to an airport hub. It's only those that have serious mobility issues that will be able to be vaccinated in the pop-up clinics. Thank you. And secondly, for those travelling back and quarantining, is there any guidance that the government gives in terms of what is actually classed as safe and suitable accommodation or is it entirely the responsibility of the person travelling back? So in terms of where it is a patient transfer coming back, the department will assist the patient transfer um, in finding appropriate accommodation if they have to isolate outside of the home. In relation to those travelling on their own, it is their responsibility to ensure that they have adequate accommodation for them to be able to perform their isolation in outside of that home space. Thank you. And next up, I've got Simon Richardson from Business 365. Good afternoon, Simon. Good afternoon, Minister. Um, stage scientists in the UK have this afternoon um, predicted a significant return to normality once the over 50s are vaccinated in the UK. Could that be the trigger for a relaxation of our border controls? I mean, the talk is that the UK could reach that position by the end of March. Well, we factor in a multitude of things, Simon, um, and I'll bring the Director of Public Health in from the medical standpoint in a moment, but um, we factor in a variety of things, as I think I've said before. It's UK infection rate, it's the risk to the island. Now, we know that the UK before has been optimistic that they've been in a good place, they've released, and then after a few weeks, things have gone back the other way. So we would, I think, have to see a sustained period of improvement in the UK and certainly it coming down a long way from where it is now. I think it was Chris Whitty who yesterday said that although the UK was past the peak, it was still a very large way up the mountainside um, compared to where it should be. So we have to be very cautious, I think, about announcements around normality. We've said ourselves that once we get to the point where we've vaccinated all the over 50s, that's a review point. It doesn't mean things will necessarily change overnight, but it will be a review point for us. Um, but we have to remember we do have to be cautious about this. What we don't want to do is release measures and then see that as a result, we end up in a very dire situation. But I'll bring Henrietta in in case there's any Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the levels in the UK now, even though they're coming down, would still have been eye-watering if we'd seen them in the summer. So there's something about getting a bit kind of... Um, you know, you, you get a bit impervious to these numbers. You forget how horrendous they are and how high the numbers still in hospital across are and how high the demand on ICU is. Um, so we do have to be mindful of that. 
um, and also mindful of the other things that can come into the mix, like uh, the new variants and the impact of those. I think we have to think about where normality sits with us, because actually, while we're COVID-free on Ireland, life on Ireland is pretty normal, and I think we all very much appreciate that. Um, the issue then is about borders, and at what point can we flex at the borders? And some of that will be driven by, or the consideration will be driven by the numbers across, because the higher the rates across, uh, the more risk there is that travellers will bring it on island. But the other side of that is how many travellers? Could we increase the number of travellers coming across as rates fall across? Um, which we probably can. But then what sort of mitigations will we still need to require for them if we want to keep COVID free on island? So, you know, what will we still need in terms of self-isolation and testing? Will we be able to bring back modified testing regimes like the day seven test leading to modified self-isolation or not? So all of those things are things that can be taken into consideration and debated ultimately by a council of ministers in terms of deciding where the risks sit, how we can mitigate them, and how that might look in terms of being more flexible at the border while still keeping us COVID secure on island. People can return waiting. Oh, so, sorry, Simon, would you just repeat that for us? We missed the start. You were still unmuted. Right, sorry. Um, how quickly do you think Nobles Hospital can return waiting lists to pre-COVID levels, assuming that we stay clear of the virus? It's going to be a struggle, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, as Minister for Health and Social Care, I've never tried to hide the fact waiting lists have increased over the COVID period, and it is going to take a substantial amount of time across quite a few specialities to bring those down. Um, the issue is as well, we will look to bring in additional resource to try and help to drive those lists down. But of course, the vast majority of our additional resource comes from the UK, and the UK has its own pressures and problems, which quite rightly they are going to prioritise um, from their point of view. So I'd love to be able to stand here and say six months, 12 months, everything will be fine, back to normal. It will differ by speciality. Um, it will differ by the amount of additional resource we're able to bring in by that speciality, by what's available and what's manageable. Um, but it will be it will be a battle. I'm going to be perfectly honest about that to get things back to pre-COVID levels. And it will take a substantial amount of time. Thank you. And then, uh, last but not least, I've got Tim Glover at Manx Radio. Good afternoon, Tim. Faster, my minister. Uh, just a lot's been covered, so I'll uh, pick on one specific here. Um, our son, daughter-in-law, just had a baby during the latest lockdown circuit breaker. They've been told there are no home visits by the nursing community post-birth uh, because all the nurses are being used to provide vaccinations. Uh, uh, just a comment on that and, and what other services are missing at the moment? Well, the one thing I would say is I'd be surprised if they were being used to provide vaccinations because we haven't impacted day-to-day -day services in order to provide the vaccination programme. Um, the vaccination programme with staff resource has been done in a way that it didn't impact day-to-day -day services. The nurses within maternity during the lockdown may well have been redirected to all the duties because we did have restrictions. The restrictions that were put in place around maternity weren't due to nurses doing all the duties. They were due to the fact around a risk-based approach of what was safe um, for the families involved. We did unfortunately have to restrict um, house calls and 
visits within the hospital area as well um, around maternity during the lockdown period. I know it was very stressful for expectant mothers and mothers who had recently given birth. Um, it was a huge amount of pressure on top of the stress they have already. So I do thank them for bearing with us. But from a clinical point of view, it was recommended that these measures needed to be taken to protect the families themselves as well as everyone else. Um, and now that we are back to our version of normality, um, we can thankfully reinstate those things to ensure that people get a much smoother and a much better service um, than what they would probably see in a lot of other jurisdictions that unfortunately now have had to have some of these measures in place for a substantial amount of time. And just uh, with Guernsey and the Isle of Man, we've often mirrored each other and we've had the air bridge and followed fairly similar protocols throughout this uh, pandemic. Uh, we've had uh, outbreaks, second uh, waves, if you like, at similar times. We got away with, what, about 50-odd cases. Uh, they've got 346 as it currently stands. So uh, I'm just intrigued as to how we managed to get on top of it quicker. Were we lucky in some respects? Was it that we got a contact and trace quite early? Uh, and what's the difference? Because I know that uh, we talk with uh, Dr. Brink from the public health side of things. What what have they missed or, or were there unfortunate circumstances in Guernsey? Well, I'll, I'll bring Dr. Hewitt in a moment, but I, I don't think Guernsey's missed anything, Tim. I, I don't think at all. They've got very robust systems down there. So have we. The issue with Guernsey is when the outbreak started, they didn't know where the original routes of transmission had come from. And that is always a problem because if you can't trace back to the original routes of transmission before you know it, different cases are popping up at different areas all over the community and you don't know what you're battling, it's too late. We, were, we, we had the fortunate situation where in relation to the two main cases, ours were symptomatic, so presented. So we were able, therefore, to do the contact tracing, use our robust systems to shut it down early. If those people had been asymptomatic and then the people after them had maybe been asymptomatic, then it could have been a very different story. And it goes back to what I was saying in my opening remarks, that it only takes one person, if something goes wrong, for you to end up in a widespread outbreak. And I think, you know, I use the same phrase that the Chief Minister used at the last press conference, there but for the grace of God, go we. Um, I, it's very unfortunate for Guernsey. I really feel for them because they have done so well throughout this pandemic period. Um, we're very, very close. We've mirrored a lot of things that we've done. And unfortunately, in this instance, as with an invisible enemy, it's slipped through the net and they're now having to face the battle that they are. But I'll hand over to Dr Hewitt. Yes, uh, very little to add to that, really. I mean, we work very closely as public health teams here with um, our opposites in Guernsey. We speak most weeks. Um, if it happened there, it could have happened here. And as the minister says, we were lucky. All of this goes back to behaviour, and I have to stress this. COVID doesn't pop up by spontaneous generation. It comes in from somewhere else. So behaviours drove the situation both on Ireland here and in Guernsey. And, you know, that's another plea to everybody to please take this seriously. Don't think you can think for yourself, oh, if I just do this, it'll be all right. Because as the minister has said a couple of times today, it only takes one. But the issue, as the minister has said, was that we had symptomatic presentation, admittedly not as soon as we would have liked, 
um, but we did get it and we got it in time to actually identify the lines of transmission back to the travel incidents that had brought them in so we could track them back and we could track them forward and we could effectively contain and close them. Now in Guernsey they got a number all coming up at once of community cases with no link that they could find to a travel related case. It must have been a travel related case, one or more, who did whatever they did that meant that it got out there. Um, whether it was people who were truly asymptomatic or who had symptoms which they chose not to report, who knows, both of those scenarios are possible, we know that from here, we know it from big data sets in the UK. Um, so by the time they identified it, it was everywhere and I think, you know, I've used this analogy before, but it's like the moorland fire that gets down under the peat, you don't think it's there, you've got no way of seeing it, but then it suddenly pops up and can get out of control and you've still got no way of finding where in the peat layer it is. Um, so that's kind of where Guernsey are. Although that said, they are getting it under control. Their daily rising cases is falling and their very vigorous contact tracing and self-isolation will get on top of it. But it will undoubtedly take longer than we were able to do it in because of the differences that we've gone through. Thank you. Can I thank our media partners for those questions? I have often said at this podium that we have got through this as, as a community and the community spirit has been our binding force. Earlier this week, our world community lost a towering figure that embraced the very essence of community spirit, Captain Sir Tom Moore. Captain Sir Tom was an inspiration to people all over the globe and the fact that he lost his final battle to COVID-19 makes the loss even more pronounced. He was the embodiment of resolve and determination and stood as an example to us all that with steadfast determination, we can achieve so much. Our world community is poorer and a shining, and a shining light has gone out with his loss, but his memory and legacy will live on in all our hearts. He and his achievements will never be forgotten. With things returning back to some semblance of normality again after the circuit breaker lockdown here on our island, it is easy to think that for us, COVID-19 is a thing of the past. It isn't. Despite us regaining most of our freedoms, those freedoms have been hard won and we must continue to remain vigilant and follow the rules in place around travel and self-isolation. I have said before at this podium how it has inspired me with how our island community has pulled together over this last 12 months. Over the last three weeks, we've done it again and banished the community spread of COVID-19 <laughs> from our shores. But the risk has not gone away. The risk from this invisible enemy is still ever present. Thank you to each and every one of you for all that you have done, continue to do, and the sacrifices many of you have made and continue to do, be that being parted from friends and family or restricting your what in normal times may be necessary trips off island. You are keeping our island safe and together I hope and believe that we will come out of this ever stronger as a community. Thank you. <laughs>